This episode is the first of two parts about what makes for a culture of trust in any organization. I will start by talking about what it feels to have a culture of trust, what are the symptoms of having a culture of trust, and how those symptoms correlate to trust. In this episode, I will talk about the vertical components, autonomy and accountability. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 6 of The Trust Show. I'm your host, Yoram Solomon, a researcher of trust and the author of The Book of Trust. In this educational podcast, I will challenge you to think differently about trust through the eight laws of trust and the six components of trustworthiness. I will share my own stories, experiences of others, trust research, and sometimes simply reflect on a news item. Through all of those, I will show you how to build trust, be trusted, and know who to trust. Because the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? I'm going to go back to my PhD research. I told you about that research in episode two, and and I'll take you back to the research question, which was, why are people so much more creative in startup companies than in large mature companies? Because at that time, I had already built startup companies and closed and sold startup companies, bought startup companies. But at the time I was working on my dissertation, or at least coming up with the topic, I worked for a company with 35,000 employees that was anything but a startup. And I could feel the difference in culture, and that's what I wanted to research. Two years later, 348-page dissertation was done, and I want to touch on some of the highest level correlations between creativity, productivity, and those components. So I'm only going to focus on the ones that I found to have very strong correlation. The first one was autonomy or the freedom to do what you think is right or to do things the way you want to do them. That was a strong, that had a strong positive correlation with creativity or productivity. The existence of external challenges, and I'll tell you later about the distinction of external challenges, very strong positive impact on creativity and productivity. The involvement, the level of being involved and knowing what you do and how it correlates to the success of the company, the project, the team, very strong positive one, positive correlation. Team dynamics and specifically trust. So this was funny because this was long before I started writing about trust, but what I found was that the biggest part of team dynamics was trust. It has a strong positive impact on creativity and productivity. Bureaucracy, formalization, processes, or at least the way that I'll describe them, had a very strong negative correlation on creativity and productivity. Then the rest of the components, some were positive, some were negative, some were just not statistically significant enough or not strong. They were negligible. An interesting thing that I found was about resources and the availability of resources and how important that was for creativity and productivity. And what I found was that it had a very unique and interesting relationship with creativity and productivity. It's not as straightforward as as you might think, but I'm not going to touch on this, uh, at least not in this episode. I may come back to that in a later stage because that's not the focus of this podcast. 
If I had to summarize what I found, I would call it just with two words, innovation culture. And this is where I wrote the book, Culture Starts With You, Not Your Boss, and I described it as a two-by-two matrix. On the left side are the vertical components or the hierarchical components. This is what what happens between a leader and a follower going down and going up versus the horizontal components that are on the right side. And this is what happens between team members or members of the same team, people at the same level. On the top, the two boxes at the top, those are the positive ones. And in the bottom, those are the negative ones. So if I start from the top left on the vertical axis, the on the positive things are going to be autonomy going down. This is when a leader gives autonomy to their employee. And then going up, what you get in response is you get accountability. In the bottom, on the left side, those are the negative things on the vertical axis. And this is what happens when the leader gives to the employees bureaucracy. And what they get in response is CYA. All they do is just cover their asses. This is what you get on the vertical side. On the right side, on the horizontal side, between members of the same team, people at the same hierarchical level, what you will get on the positive side is the ability to hold a constructive disagreement. And this is something that I'll talk about in greater detail in the next episode of this podcast. On the negative side are all the other alternatives to constructive disagreement. I'll talk about that in the next episode, but for now, I'll just call it the destructive disagreement or the political correct disagreement or office politics. And again, I'll talk about those more in a later episode. So without further ado, let's talk about autonomy. And to start with talking about autonomy, I'm going to ask you a question. Think about that in your head. How do you answer these two scenarios? So the first scenario is one of your employees, you're a leader, one of your employees came to you and said, I tried something without asking your permission first and failed. How would you react? What would you do? Have you done that in the past? Did that ever happen to you? So three things that I heard most leaders, many leaders say, one, well, this is going to cost you. There are going to be consequences to that failure. The second is don't ever do that again. You know, I'm going to forgive you this time, but don't ever do that again. The third one is next time, ask me first before you do that. Just so that you know, use either one of those three And you are not providing autonomy. What you're providing is micromanagement. What you're assuring is that somebody will come back to you and ask for every step of the way because they don't want to try it by themselves. Here is the second scenario. The second scenario is not as bad. It's actually a good one. One of your employees comes to you and says, I have a great idea. How do you respond to that? Did you ever respond with, well, tell me what it is and I'll be a judge of how good this is? You know how often leaders do that? And once again, what did you just do to the employee? You just became very judgmental and they're probably never going to come back to you with any other great ideas. That didn't work very well. 
You know, Teresa Amabile, who's an author and, and wrote a lot about creativity and creativity culture, and I quoted her a lot when I worked on my dissertation, she had a great definition to the autonomy or the freedom that you need to give in the context of creativity. And, and I'm going to paraphrase what, paraphrase what she said, but what she said is the autonomy is not necessarily to let your employees decide which mountain they're going to climb. You decide which mountain they're going to climb. G- giving them autonomy is to give them the freedom to decide how to climb that mountain. Let me talk about some of the components that make for autonomy. One big one, for me at least, is the big picture. You know, as a pilot, when whenever I taxi in an airport, and I, if it's a complex airport and uh, a lot of taxiways and runways, you look at the map, but but it's hard for you from looking around to see where you are to know exactly where you are. But as soon as you take the run the runway and you get a clear for takeoff from the tower and you take off, you climb up to three thousand feet or so, you make a left turn, you look out of the window, you see the airport. The airport is laid down in front of you and you know exactly where you are you know exactly where you were in every point of the way this is when you get the big picture how what i do plays a role in the overall project is having visibility to the big picture this is the opposite of compartmentalization. Compartmentalization. This is what we typically do. We break a project, a large project, to smaller components. And if you remember, when I talked about in the first episode, I talked about the size of the team. You probably don't want to give a project or, or parts, pieces of projects to teams that are bigger than five, six, seven, maybe eight people. So you do break it apart. But the question is, do you compartmentalize it as well? Do, do you let them see the bigger picture and what others are doing or not well another part of giving the big picture and giving autonomy is actually to let your people know how what they do contributes to the overall success and the overall outcome of of the team the project or or the overall company when they see that they feel that they do have an economy and an autonomy to to make an impact to to make a difference just the fact that you give them visibility to what others are doing and you're not blocking that kind of information from them the fact that you give them that visibility allows for cross-pollinization people working in one team can see what others are doing and get great ideas from them they can share good ideas with them you overall increase the level of again creativity innovation productivity just by this sharing by not compartmentalizing it giving exposure to external challenges is another part of autonomy I remember when I worked on my my research, I found that challenges would increase creativity. And that's great. And I started interviewing all of my participants until I I got to one participant, Matthew. Matthew, if you're listening, you know who you are. And when I asked Matthew about challenges, he said, what kind of challenges? And I asked him, are there different kinds, at least in your opinion? And he categorized them into two parts external challenges and internal challenges he said external challenges you know things like the budget is limited the investment we have in the company is uh, very limited uh the competition the market uh our brand that's not very well known those are all external challenges and the way matthew described it to me is 
the more external challenges we have, the more creative we had to be and the more creative we became. But he also identified a second type of challenges, internal challenges. This is where the company was was acting almost as an antibody to every new idea that you had. And they just put hurdles in front of you and barriers that, that were hard to, to cross and, and created bureaucracy and processes that were really not meant to help, but meant to stop. Those are internal challenges and internal challenges are actually preventing creativity, preventing productivity, and are the opposite of autonomy. They fall under bureaucracy. One of the things that I learned very quickly when I ran a business unit was to let your engineers go visit the customers. Because when the engineer meets the customer and really can get to see what the customer needs, it's so much easier for them when they come back home to build the right thing. This is autonomy. Give them the autonomy to hear directly from the customer. Don't be the thing in the middle between the customer and the engineer telling the engineer your interpretation of what the customer really needs. Let them get that firsthand. One other thing that that I learned is really helpful is to share the boundaries. You know, as a leader, you are bound by certain boundaries. Uh, You know, there's so much budget you can use. There's so many people that you can use uh, and other things. These are typically the ones that the schedule and so on. And, And what leaders often do is they break it down into different pieces of the project and they create artificial challenges or boundaries to their people. And so I know that the overall budget for my business unit is not going to be more than $60 million, but I break it down and I give different groups, uh, let's say pieces of of $10 million a piece. Well, what if one group can do it, they must have 12 million while the other can do it for eight? Why, Why is it that you have to break it down? So what I typically do is I share the boundaries. I just say, look, these are the boundaries that I have to live by. These are the boundaries that my boss holds me to that I'm bound by and if you can work within those boundaries so that I don't violate my boundaries I'm good do whatever you need to do you have the autonomy you have the freedom to do that It's very easy for me to sit here and say, hey, you have to give autonomy to your people. But you and I both know that in order for you to give autonomy to your people, you must trust them. So I want to take you back to that uh, survey that I did when I asked the question, what is the most important quality for you in other people? And in 61.2% of uh, the cases, the answer was trustworthiness. The most important quality for me in other people was trustworthiness. But I asked about six types of people. I asked people about their bosses, their employees, their peers at the same level, a salesperson trying to sell them something, and their, uh, their, uh, their government representative and their spouses. Well, Trustworthiness was the most important quality in 61.2% of the time across the board, but it was only the most important quality in five of those six types. Can you guess what this one type when trustworthiness was actually not number one? It was when I asked leaders about their employees. When I asked them, what is the most important quality for you in your employee? The number one answer with 47.5% was not trustworthiness. 
It was the willingness to work hard. Number two with 39%, 8.5% less, was trustworthiness. This was the only case where trustworthiness was not number one. Number one with 47.5% was the willingness to work hard, which brings back something that Henry Ford once said. He asked, why is it that every time I ask for a pair of hands, they come with a brain attached? We're in 2021 and leaders still think this way. And to me, this is what I call the biggest leadership failure that we have. The reason that leaders are not looking for trustworthiness as number one is because they are not looking to trust their employees. They're not looking to give autonomy. Is autonomy actually good for everyone? Does everyone want autonomy? So I'll tell you a story, another story. Uh, when I worked back in Israel, uh, I led a group of just about 20 engineers, a research and development group. And uh, I was involved with one of the projects very intimately. By the way, I was a micromanager. I mean, I was the dictionary definition of a micromanager. I needed to know everything. I needed to know every step. I needed to tell them what to do with every step of the way. And I had two engineers working on a project. And one day, because I was involved in this other project, I just didn't have enough time to micromanage them. Micromanagement takes time and takes effort. And so I hope you already know that. And so I took these two engineers and uh, I told them, look, I don't have time to manage your project. Really, I should have said I don't have time to micromanage your project anymore. What I want you to do is I need you to just finish it yourselves. I need you to work on it by yourselves. The project, the purpose of that project was to uh, pass a certain regulation in a certain European country for the product that they have been developing under my very strict micromanagement. But I asked them to just finish it by themselves without my micromanagement. We're going to meet once a week. You're going to give me a report, tell me how things are going. But that essentially is going to be it. This is going to be my involvement. Well, they worked on it. Uh, they worked another three months. They submitted it to a certification and failed. They failed the first time. Well, I wasn't too happy. It obviously justified why I needed to micromanage them, them, micromanage them, but I still didn't have the time to micromanage them, so I let them continue. You just decide not which mountain to climb because the mountain is that certification, European certification, but you get to decide how and do whatever it takes to get there. And so they tried again. They made changes. They learned from that mis the first mistake, the first failure. Uh, they made changes and then they submitted again and succeeded this time without my micromanagement. They did that all by themselves. And so I wanted to, to me, this was news. This was interesting. I wanted to understand it better. So I brought them into my office. The fortunate thing I did was I brought them into my office one at a time. I asked the first one, what was your experience? How did you feel uh, when I told you, you know, you're going to have to finish it by yourself? He said, I felt empowered. All of a sudden, I worked harder. I worked longer hours. I had the freedom to do what was right. And we succeeded. Then I brought the second one and I was shocked because the second one said, you dropped this in our lap. You didn't want to be involved with this project. So you dropped this. You dropped it in our lap. Autonomy is not good for everyone. There was a study that was conducted at the Liverpool Hope University School of Business in 2014. 
And in that study, they asked employees in in that uh, in in that facility. They asked them if autonomy was important to them, if they were getting it, and and if they wanted to get that. Seventy eight percent of them said that autonomy was important to them. It had a very uh, positive, strong positive uh, impact, effect on creativity and productivity. But 78% said that it was important to them. 22% did not think that it was important to them or did not want autonomy. Autonomy is not good for just about everyone. And that's something you need to keep in mind. When you're building trust, I mean, you obviously you need to trust to, to give autonomy, and I'll talk about that uh, a little later. But you need to keep in mind that not everybody welcomes getting autonomy from you. Now, the autonomy must be not just something that you know that you're giving them. You know that it's okay if they fail. You know that uh, you're letting them do things their way. It needs to be visible. It needs to be expressed. You need to say that you're giving them the freedom. They need to know. You need to make sure that they know that you give them that autonomy. But it's easy, again, for me to say just give autonomy. But as I said before... In order for you to be able to give autonomy, you need to trust that person first. And I can't force you to trust them. And I mentioned that in episode three uh, when I asked the question, what comes first, trust or trustworthiness, and, and how you have to start with trust, and what are the consequences of starting without trust or with trust. And that has obviously implication to whether you're going to give autonomy or you're not going to give autonomy. Remember one thing, if you don't give autonomy, what if what you give instead is bureaucracy and i'll talk about bureaucracy next what you get instead of accountability you'll get cya your employees will cover their asses and not much more than that one final thought about autonomy because before i'll start talking about bureaucracy is that autonomy and trust flow downwards to lower levels in the organization so if the ceo trusts the executive team and gives them autonomy the executive team feels more comfortable trusting their employees and giving their auto- them autonomy and it keeps going down from there so autonomy flows downwards in the organization so it really kind of must start with the ceo I'll spend just a few minutes talking about bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is really the opposite of autonomy. And as my research showed, it has a very strong negative impact on creativity, productivity, and a lot of other good things that are not going to happen if what you have is bureaucracy. Part of bureaucracy is processes. Now, I don't want you to think that processes are bad. You need processes. I have my own process. Uh, For example, recording this episode or recording this podcast, I have a process. I know what needs to happen first, what needs to be turned down, what needs to be turned out, how do I need to test my sound and, and so on. Processes are good. Startup companies that I found in my research were using processes, but all those processes were created and perceived as helpful processes that would make everything more efficient and more effective. Unfortunately, I've seen processes used as a whip. I remember once hearing from a CFO telling me in a company that they put this very, very 
heavy-handed process, a purchase requisition process. And that CFO told me essentially to my face that the purpose of that or the reason to have such a heavy-handed process was he was hopeful that at some point the employees are just going to say, you know what, I just give up. I'm not going to buy that. And this is how we can save money. This is how you use process as a whip. Formalization. Everything has to be very formal. Nothing can be informal. We can't really have arguments. And I'll talk more about that in the next episode. That is a signal of bureaucracy. The role of the leader here is really to shield his or her organization from this kind of bureaucracy. So again, I'll tell you a story. I worked for a company and that company has deployed a certain piece of software. Uh, We're going to call it just X. And they deployed X. And what X was doing was it was software that tracked what the engineers were working on. Now, knowing what I knew, having finished my PhD dissertation already, I knew that having my team report on that software called X is just going to create more bureaucracy on them. It's going to reduce their creativity. It's going to reduce their productivity. And so I really fought tooth and nail against it. And and we really got to the point where the CEO said, we're going to use it. Your team is going to use it, period, because I'm the CEO and I said so. So we deployed it. Well, as you can imagine, any new tool, it takes a while for everybody to get on board and do it on time. And uh, we had our budget manager that would come to our executive meetings and report on all the different teams that are falling behind on reporting on that software called X. And he turned to me and he said, but Yoram, there is one thing that I don't get. You are the one person that fought tooth and nail against deploying X. I mean, you made me feel uncomfortable in that meeting when you were fighting that hard with the CEO. Yet, your team is always on time putting their reports into X. How come? And I asked him, uh, can you check the time when they're submitting it? And he looked at the time and he goes, wow, they submitted one after the other within a span of 30 minutes. And then he got it. My employees, my team had never filled X reports. I did it for them. That is the role of a leader. You are the shield from bureaucracy to your team. You need to be the one that separates them from that bureaucracy. Now, you know, when when we started, uh, when COVID-19 started and we started working remotely, All kinds of software companies came out and started offering software tools that would allow you to track your employees and to uh, uh, track your students. If you're a professor and uh, I know that my daughter was telling me that this is a remote proctored exam that she's taking and they're actually using the camera to look at the room and they're listening to the microphone. And I think that it it comes to something very, very simple. If you don't trust your employees, you have the wrong people working for you. I mean, you may not trust them simply because you can start with trust. But if you start if you start with trust and you start trusting them and they're not trustworthy to the point where you can't trust them, you have the wrong employees. You need to either fix it or you must replace them. 
To explain accountability, I'll start with another story. Uh, the story of why I ran for the Plano Independent School District Board. It started in a STEM summit. And uh, in that STEM summit, uh, STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. Uh, those are kind of the sciences uh, that go into education. And we're talking about K through 12th, uh, 12th grade. So I was there as a representative of industry. At the time, I was an executive vice president of corporate strategy for a public technology company, and I represented industry in that STEM summit. And I was asked, or our table was asked, I was not the only person there, our table was asked, what do you think industry needs from STEM education? Well, another person at our table jumped up and said, we need more COBOL programmers. Now, I get it that there's a higher probability that you don't know what COBOL is than, than that you do. COBOL is a programming language that pretty much died way before the students who are graduating from school now were ever born. I learned that a little uh, when I was younger, but never used it. Well, why do we need COBOL programmers? Everybody rolled their eyes and looked at him, and he said, well, because some systems, uh, mainly I think insurance and banking maybe, uh, still use COBOL, and all the COBOL programmers have retired or otherwise expired, and so we need new COBOL programmers. Well, when I heard that, I jumped up and I said, I'm not willing to have schools teach a profession that will die very soon, leaving graduate students with uh, who have mortgages and car loans and maybe student loans to pay or anything else, start on a career that will die a few years into it. So they turned to me and they said, so what do you think uh, uh, industry needs from STEM education? And, and I was standing there in the middle of the room looking around thinking I should have thought about the answer before I stood up and opened my big mouth. But the one word that came out of my mouth was entrepreneurship. We need more entrepreneurs. And so they asked me, wait, th does that mean that an entrepreneur, uh, that everybody needs to start a business? We need to teach 100% of our students in our high schools how to start businesses. And I said, no, an entrepreneur is not necessarily somebody who starts a business. An entrepreneur is someone who wakes up in the morning, can see the opportunities, can assess the risk, can plot a plan and execute on that plan without having somebody tell them what to do in every step of the way, whether it's their boss, their parent, their teacher, their principal, or anybody else. That's an entrepreneur. I was an entrepreneur when I worked in, the Texas, in Texas Instruments, a company that had 35,000 employees. I was still an entrepreneur because I could identify the opportunities, the risk, make a plan and execute on it. And that really is what accountability is about. It's your willingness to try things, to experiment, to take risks, and know that you're accountable for it if it fails. And being accountable doesn't mean that you just say, oh, the box stops with me. Uh, I'll take full responsibility. You see, when you actually do take full responsibility and full accountability. I'll go back to my study when I asked that question. What is the most important quality for you in other people? And 61.2% said trustworthiness. I want to touch on something else in that study. Remember that there are five options that I gave them, and one of them was the willingness to take risk. You know who identified the willingness to take risk higher than any other group or in any other relationship? Employees when asked about their leaders. When I asked employees about their bosses, about their leaders, 
The most important quality was trustworthiness. The second most important quality was willingness to take risk with 21%, which was three times higher than what their leaders said about them. So employees want their leaders to be willing to take risk. What kind of risk? Risk on them. Give me the autonomy. I'll give you accountability. Let me summarize this sixth episode of the first season. I talked about the elements, the components that make for a culture of trust in an organization. I talked about the vertical ones, and the vertical ones are the ones between a leader and a follower, going down, autonomy, going up, uh, accountability. And I talk about the horizontal ones. And Ellen, if you're listening, you will see that with my Israeli accent, I already know how to say horizontal and not horizontal. You know who you are. Vertically, going down, autonomy, going up, accountability. On the negative side, going down, bureaucracy or formalization and going up, CYA. There is an interaction that I want to explain. There's kind of a reciprocal relationship between those components. So I'll give you four scenarios. If the leader trusts the employee, they will give them autonomy. If they give them autonomy, what they will get in response is accountability. And that accountability will only justify the trust that the leader has in their employee. If the leader, on the other hand, distrusts, does not trust the employee, then they will give them bureaucracy and over-formalization and strict processes. How will the employee respond? With a CYA attitude. And that CYA attitude will only justify why the leader did not trust the employee to start with. Going up, if the employee trusts their leader, then they will give accountability. They'll take responsibility. And when they do that, the leader will give them autonomy because they know that they can trust them. And now the employee getting that autonomy realizes that they their trust in their leader was justified. If the employee distrusts their supervisor, their leader, the attitude that they're going to reflect up is CYA, cover your ass. In response, the leader will come back with bureaucracy. And that would only justify why the employee did not trust their leader to start with. In the next episode of this season, I will provide the second half of this culture of trust. This time, I will talk about the horizontal component of organizational culture, the one between people at the same hierarchical level, the peers, and this is the ability to hold a constructive disagreement. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll make sure to answer it or find the answer to it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. That's Y-O-R-A-M at thetrustshow.com. If you like this podcast episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get new episodes. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings would help others who are looking for a podcast just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my online course at trustedatwork.com. Find my books on Amazon or go to my website, yoramsolomon.com. 
And remember one thing, the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening.